Hi, this is Dr. Paul Sachs, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases. And for today's OFID podcast, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. James Cherry. He's Research Professor of Pediatrics at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, and he's a longstanding expert in pertussis, commonly known as whooping cough, and has conducted numerous studies on pertussis epidemiology and prevention, and that's what we're going to be discussing today. Uh, Jim, why don't you get us started by telling us about the origins of your interest in pertussis? What happened that made you decide to be a pertussis investigator? <laughs> you know, I was a virologist by training. In fact, in the two places I was in before UCLA, I set up virus labs and did the same thing here. And then in 1976, a young faculty member wanted to go after an FDA contract to study whole cell vaccine reactions. And this was in anticipation of getting acellular vaccines. And I went in on that with him because I had this long track record with both the FDA and NIH. We got the contract and I've been there ever since. There has been now a vaccine for some time, but despite the vaccine, we still have cases of pertussis. So how would you describe the current state of pertussis epidemiology, both here in the United States and internationally? There are really two epidemiologies. One is reported pertussis, and the other is B. pertussis infection. Pertussis has always been underreported all over the world. And in the past, virtually all adult cases went undiagnosed. As far as B. pertussis infection, we actually did the first study in adults 33 years ago. And there have been many subsequent studies, and they've all pretty much found the same thing, as about 13% of afebrile prolonged cough illnesses are due to bordetella pertussis infections. Another study we did also a long time ago found that infection is incredibly common. We studied a group of healthcare workers at UCLA over five years. And the infection rate in that group was 6% a year, mm. and incredibly high. In fact, so high, I had trouble believing it. Yeah. But 10 years later, in the Netherlands, they actually found exactly what we found. So infections are exceedingly common. Now, the actual rate of infections in carefully controlled studies, the data on that isn't as much as we would like, however... There was a CDC study in Minneapolis and St. Paul done in group health practices, and the rate there was uh, 500 per 100,000 population. That's about a million cases a year in the United States, in adolescents and predominantly adults. And that seems to be higher than it was 10, 20 years ago. It actually is not. I mean, again, these studies were done 20 years ago now, but the misconception that pertussis has always been circulating in adults, that your immunity following natural infection doesn't last very long. Following whole cell vaccine is actually better than natural infection. Mm, interesting. This is a study we did in Germany and also in the U.S., so immunity is not too long after vaccine, and of course now with acellular vaccines, the immunity is definitely not as good as whole cell vaccines and not as good as natural infection. 
So when the news has a report, cases of pertussis are up, what are they referring to? That comes out in the lay media all the time. They blame it on the present vaccines. But actually, the increase in reported pertussis started 14 years before the use of acellular vaccines. And so the reason is greater awareness. So this is really a perceptual problem rather than an actual increase. What you're telling us is that there's always been a lot of circulating pertussis. That's right. There may be changes in the clinical manifestations that the vaccine failures may be different. With whole cell vaccines, the failures were more all or none, whereas acellular vaccine failures have less severe illness. Mm, Interesting. So there may be differences in clinical expression. So the acellular vaccines induce partial immunity and clinically less severe disease? Yes, definitely. Back in the 1920s and 1930s, adults got pertussis, and they got pertussis more than once. And people describe typical adult pertussis, and that has been overlooked. B. pertussis infection in adults is endemic and is going on all the time, and it always has. And one of the things now is most cases in adults still get missed, but using PCR for diagnosis finds many more cases of pertussis. And then in adults, the use of single serum serology, uh, and this is more widely used in Europe, finds adult cases that in the past would have been missed. So you shared with me a wonderful presentation that you gave uh, at IDSA recently and you list several misconceptions about pertussis, and you've already covered some of them. Are there any others that you want to mention? You mentioned the fact that people really didn't understand the fact that it's always circulating in adults. Any other misconceptions? Well, those are the big ones. In spite of all our concern about pertussis today, there's 20-fold less pertussis than there was in the pre-vaccine era. And secondly, the vaccine failures are less ill than unvaccinated people who have pertussis. So overall, a successful vaccine program in general, you would say? Yes, definitely. Let's talk a little bit more about the clinical illness. You you mentioned that there are people who have such mild infection that they would never get diagnosed. But when you're teaching clinicians, both generalists and ID specialists, about pertussis, how would you describe typical cases? You have to divide that up by age group and then also whether people have been vaccinated before. Classic pertussis occurs in somebody who hasn't had vaccine. It would usually be a young child. And here, the key thing for all age groups is it's an afebrile illness. There's no fever with pertussis unless there's a secondary infection. And so for young infants, that classic pertussis is an afebrile illness that starts with Carizer and cough, and then the cough gets worse over a couple-week period or in the young babies in a shorter period. And then they have the typical paroxysmal cough. Now, there are plenty of illnesses with cough, but without a true paroxysmal cough. What that means is that you cough until all your air is gone, and then you take a deep breath. Whereas if you have something like mycoplasma pneumoniae, or if you have a respiratory viral infection like I have now, you'll cough and you'll breathe. For young primary infections, they'll always have leukocytosis with lymphocytosis, and that's due to pertussis toxin. 
once you've had pertussis or once you've had vaccine, you never get that again with pertussis. So you'll never see an adult with leukocytosis with lymphocytosis, or for that matter, an adolescent. So it only occurs in primary cases. Now, when we get to adolescents and adults, again, it's afebrile cough illness. They will have typical paroxysms. They'll be worse at night, and they will feel like they have to sit up at night. They won't have wheezing. If there's wheezing, it's not pertussis. And if there's fever, it's not pertussis. Those are some very helpful clinical pearls. And as you mentioned, a lot of illnesses can cause a prolonged cough. And, you know, the 100-day cough, which is the cliche that we use for pertussis, at that point, when someone's been coughing for so long, PCR is generally negative, and uh, antibody testing is difficult to interpret. How do you counsel us about that? Well, adults don't usually take care to the third or fourth week. That is, that you'll have many PCRs that are negative. So the correct way to diagnose pertussis in adults is by serology. But there's a lot of bad commercial serologic tests out there. So you have to pick the right one. And any test that uses the whole organism or says they're doing IgA antibody on the whole organism, you can reject that test. It's going to give you all kinds of false positives. Mm, interesting. The only test that I know is accurate is by Focus Labs. Mm. And I know that because they standardize it with serum from us. And there, they give you antibody to PT and to FHA. Well, the PT above the cutoff value means they've recently had pertussis, and it's a very accurate test. The antibody to FHA could be due to Bordetella paraprotussis, and in fact could be due to mycoplasma pneumoniae, so it's not too useful. But the serologic diagnosis with the right test is actually very good, and it's the proper way to diagnose pertussis in adults and adolescents as well. Once you've made your diagnosis, is there any benefit to antimicrobial therapy? Yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions about antimicrobial therapy for pertussis. And it used to be said if you were in a paroxysm, this is for children, that the treatment wasn't any good. And that's wrong. We did a study in Germany that showed well into the paroxysmal stage, you could shorten the course of illness with the macrolide antibiotic. For adults, since they don't seek care to the third or the fourth week, that macrolides really don't shorten the course of the illness, but they do make the patient non-contagious. So you should treat all adults so that they don't spread to the people at greatest risk, which are young infants. Well, that's very useful information. I think that also patient expectation can be set if they know that the antimicrobials may not actually shorten this long and very frustrating illness. So right now, we don't use the whole cell pertussis vaccine. It's no longer used in the United States. So from your perspective, what happened? Well, you have to realize what happened in many countries in the world. That whole cell vaccine was blamed on a whole bunch of things that it didn't do. It was blamed on so-called vaccine encephalopathy, which actually doesn't exist. What happens is first seizures of epilepsy are brought out by pertussis vaccine in kids who are going to get epilepsy. Pertussis vaccine was also blamed on sudden infant death syndrome. And that, of course, was false. Having said that, whole cell vaccines were really unpleasant. You had fever and sometimes high fever. 
You had persistent crying. You had a unusual situation, which we called hypotonic, hyper-responsive episode. So there was really a push to get acellular vaccines. So I gather from what you said about the decline in cases that the current vaccine strategy is working out okay. Would you make any changes to our current schedule and recommendations, or are you think we're in the right place right now? Yeah, I think there's some subtle things that should be done, and there's data to support this. We give our first dose at two months, and that can easily be moved up to six weeks. You can't move it below that because you're giving that with Hib and, and other vaccines, which can't be given too young. But just moving it to six weeks compared to two months will prevent hospitalizations and deaths, and there's three studies that show that. The next most important thing is preventing pertussis in young infants, because virtually all deaths occur in the first two months of life. And by vaccinating pregnant women between 27 and 36 weeks gestation with Tdap, you can prevent all deaths and you can prevent most hospitalizations and severe disease. The vaccinating around pregnant women is also a reasonable thing to do although it is somewhat difficult to do. That is doing fathers and grandparents and people who are come in contact with a young baby. Yeah, I know that that has been incorporated into the guidelines, the immunization for pregnant women. So uh, now an infection control question. Clinicians, such as my wife, a primary care pediatrician, are commonly called about pertussis cases in schools or in the workplace And how should then pediatricians manage the children they see in their practice who have just the routine coughs of childhood? Should they be evaluating them for pertussis? Should they be giving them preventive therapy? What should they do? There were general recommendations, and this goes back before the acellular era, was that if you had pertussis in a family, that you would give a macrolide prophylaxis to other members of the family. And then that got extended to classrooms and things like that, which in California, we'd say that's not right. In the state of Wisconsin, I've forgotten the year, they spent a million dollars on prophylaxis. And so I think you want prophylaxis around young babies, but otherwise, certainly in classroom exposures, we do not recommend prophylaxis. What we do is recommend surveillance and that this first onset of afebrile respiratory illness then treat with azithromycin or erythromycin. Well, that's a very helpful guidance, and I will be sure to pass that along to her. So thank you, Dr. Cherry. This has been very, very interesting. This is Paul Sachs from Open Forum Infectious Disease, and I've been talking with Dr. James Cherry, Research Professor of Pediatrics at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA on the topic of pertussis. Thanks very much.